0: welcome you're listening to a certain degree chris castro from the city of orlando stops by for a briefer than usual interview with nick time and helping people become more sustainable waits for no person this episode is brought to you by fly me to the prune speaking of sustainability get all your local greens blues and other colorful produce without cars and with catapults our food delivery system is as organic as it is dangerous Place your order today at toacertaindegree.com.
1: And that was This Bike is a Pipe Bomb on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. We Shall Not Be Moved. Uh, I think that song is appropriate for a couple of different reasons. Good morning. My name is Nick. You're listening to A Certain Degree. I have a very special guest this morning. Chris Castro from the city of Orlando is here. Good morning, Chris. Good morrow. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, the first song we played was actually This Bike is a Pipe Bomb. Picked it very specifically for you for a couple of different reasons. And We Shall Not Be Moved. So classic sort of protest song. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that not that you're a protester, but you're an advocate. Sure. You are a person who works for the city and uh, outside of the city and sort of the social sector, trying to do a lot, trying to bring a lot of things to the Central Florida area. So we'll talk about all that. But first, I don't know you from Adam. So I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. And so the idea is we're going to play a game, uh, sort of a 20-question game, uh, maybe a little bit of a shorter version since we're going to run low on time. You have to go, you work for the city, you have to go into the city and work and do all that stuff. So uh, we're going to play a, a game called Grin or Barret instead of Grin and Barret. So if you're for something, you say grin because what's better than smiling? It not much. It lengthens your life. Right. Maybe it gives you some lines here or there, but it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Barret, bears are deadly, uh, despicable. They're smelly. They're awful creatures. They
2: ruin trash cans.
1: I'm not sure why you'd want to bring a bear into it at all. So Barret is bad. Okay iPhone's tenth anniversary. Grin or Barrett? Grin. Yeah. What? What do you miss the most? Uh, pre iPhone, pre smartphone.
2: Um. Probably, it's kind of a it, it's kind of bittersweet, right? Because uh, I think now we're we're extremely connected. Yep. Uh, I have friends all around the world, and getting to engage with them, it's almost like we don't have any borders or even even language barriers because I'm able to kind of translate. Mm-hmm. through through these apps and at the same time i think uh we're also extremely connected and so we can't get disconnected at all you can't get away like, from it can't get away from it so ah, it's kind okay. of a bitter it's kind of a bittersweet but i think um actually reflecting on it a 10-year anniversary of the iphone is is pretty incredible because it's i think only been 10 it's years only been 10 years yeah. and it's literally revolutionized the entire world
1: can you uh even remember your life prior not really <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're also a new father, so I imagine you can't remember like what happened yesterday. Not much,
2: right? All right, uh, grin or Barrett colonizing Mars? Uh, I'd say grin. Yeah, I, yeah. Do you want to go? Um, I'm not sure if I do personally, yeah. but I think it's I think it's a marvel that um, our species has evolved to a certain extent where we're actually considering colonizing a completely different planet potentially and, by and 2040 having
1: some people over there w-
2: w- which is just mind-blowing to yeah. think Also, be alive and and we may even have people on a different planet and so i, th- I think it's amazing to see that we've evolved the, to the extent that we have the knowledge to be able to do that um and so i'd, I'd say that's a grin so we'll do a little mars bnb huh. uh instead of airbnb we'll right. do that so that people <laughs> have
1: a place to stay over there uh, let, let me ask you this you're a little bit younger than me so you're fully I think ensconced as a millennial right because mm-hmm. uh, I like to use the word ensconce out of context apparently mm. uh, Instagram how do you feel about Instagram Grin
2: or Barrett I grin on Instagram yeah. um, if, if you asked me about Snapchat, I probably would have said Barrett um, yeah. but but I think that uh, Instagram has has uh, really given the power of people to uh, kind of share a message through an image uh, unlike any other app before and i personally use it as kind of a gateway to get through all my other social media channels so if i'm gonna post up any type of image i usually go through insta and then make sure it posts on just post pretty much on everything else yeah so Is that's that kinda, your
1: preferred uh channel right
2: now um i'd say between that and and facebook still yeah yeah yep
1: oh so you're sort of an old man when it comes to social media on facebook
2: but i am i guess you could say that <laughs> I've started to really jump on LinkedIn as well as a professional. Um, It's an amazing tool, and a lot of people underestimate uh, LinkedIn. Are you posting
1: quite a bit to LinkedIn? Because I I can never get the right amount. I feel like I'm either annoying people or not posting enough to make a difference. That's a
2: good point. Yeah. No, I try to post that. You know, I try to. At least once a day, or once every other day, just like oh, okay. about an interesting, you know, factoid or something I saw yeah, yeah. Within, within my network. Yeah.
1: Okay, very good. And I like to get into a lot of political discussions on uh, LinkedIn. I think that's the place for it. I'm kidding. I don't do that at all. <laughs> uh, I didn't see if it had broken off, but how do you feel about the Larsen C, either ice shelf or iceberg, Grant or Barrett? I don't know if you've heard about yeah, this over I mean, in Ant- Antarctica, basically a large section. A and B have already fallen off. Mm-hmm. So this part of the ice shelf and C, which is going to be the
2: largest by far, I think bigger than Rhode Island, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a Barrett in my opinion. I think we're starting to see that um, our unexpected consequences to the, the, the evolution of our species is also having adverse impacts on people and the planet. And, and I think uh, this is a prime example that things are getting pretty serious. You know, um, uh, both the Arctic and the Antarctic are, are kind of the, the thermal, you know, regulators, keep, yeah. regulators, what keeps us comfortable, yep. I guess you could say. And, and as those things start to erode, not only do sea levels rise, but I think you have this feedback loop that begins to expedite a lot of the challenges that we're facing. And so I think it's a challenge and it's a concern that all of us should have.
1: So then my idea for some sort of ice-based hotel on when it does become an iceberg, you're probably not for that. Not not so much. All right. I'm just taking advantage of what's out there and stuff along those lines. All right. Very good. How about uh, zombies? How do you feel about zombies?
2: I'd say Barrett. I mean, I I, I like, you know, I think the concept of zombies is pretty interesting, but I never really got into it.
1: No? No. Either as a storytelling tool or as a... uh, Uh, Well, in real life, I would imagine you're not for them.
2: Right. I'm I'm definitely not. You know, I I think uh, (laughs) planning for the zombie apocalypse is always something that we should probably do just in case something like that happens. Okay, so are we
1: breaking news here? Does the city have a zombie (laughs) apocalypse plan? Is that what you're talking about, a secret plan?
2: We have an emergency management plan Mm -hmm. for any type of... Drastic emergency, <laughs> which includes zombie apocalypse. So,
1: <laughs> so, okay. So let's obviously, yes, that covers all of the different, all of the above, yeah. including, you know, the challenging of, uh, of the climate of the climate of Instagram growing sure. out of control, uh, social media in general, that sure. sort of thing. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, so, uh, this is an interesting one for me because I go back and forth on it. So Grinner Barrett, how do you feel about soda taxes? So some cities, some states have uh, put these in place. It just got shot down somewhere, I mm-hmm, think.
2: Mm-hmm. I I'd say grin to soda taxes. I think in general commodities like soda and and water bottles. If if I had to choose, I'd probably have a water bottle tax more than a soda tax. Um, it's a great idea. Yeah, because yeah. because I do think that um, you know people people make decisions based on price oftentimes, and so if, if things are as cheap as they are, they're they're going to just be. Um, exploited and utilized the, you know, to the extent that they have been. Mm-hmm. Um, we're producing millions of bottles per day that are just being landfilled. And I think that there's a huge challenge with waste in general. Waste is extremely cheap to dispose of. And um, we need to figure out ways of reusing those commodities. And, and if there's an incentive, whether, you know, I was in Germany as an example. And in Germany, there are these kiosks literally down almost every major corridor that you can think of. And if you have a recyclable commodity, you put this bottle, let's say, into the kiosk and you're getting a euro. And it's an amazing incentive. Literally, you're getting a euro that comes out the bottom and you're like, whoa, what the heck? And people just are for lining a bottle? Just yeah. for a bottle. People are lining up with, you know, a six pack of, you know, whatever they purchase from the grocery store. And that before they actually start to go shop, they'll put the bottles into the kiosk. They'll get a couple of Euros. And then they'll go and shop. And it's kind of this, this this swap of commodities. And I think we need to start to move in that direction because the current way of managing our waste is just not sustainable.
1: So they've basically figured out that the cost of this going into the landfill, the cost of this to, you know, where you have a lot more or a lot less room, mm-hmm. right, in Europe and Germany sure. than, than we have necessarily uh, in the U.S., is that's how much it costs. So that's pretty interesting. So... Instead of trying to tax for health, it's mm-hmm. taxing for waste. Mm-hmm. So I like that because I think that, yeah, either way, there's there's a way to incentivize people to do it. Yep. I like the Germany way better, way better than taxing of course. the bottles. I mean, That's, if we were
2: getting, even if it's 10 cents per can, right, as an yeah. example, you better believe that our streets would be clean because you'd have people who are, less fortunate picking up these cans and trying to yeah. get some money from it, right? And you'd probably keep your own cans and and dispose of them, you know, the right way and, and right. Uh, just create that incentive, like you are saying.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so moving on, Grin or Barrett, uh, how about driverless cars? So we're getting some sort of test facility, I think, coming up mm-hmm. here in Lake County. If they haven't already started building it, they're going to. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to be a, a test bed for the driverless car movement, which I'd I'm personally excited about it. How do you feel about
2: it? Yeah, I, I grinned to that one. I actually helped to uh, write the proposal that the, that w- ended up getting us this designation by the USDOT to be a proving ground for new vehicle technology. So not just uh, your autonomous and automated vehicles, but connected and electric and all types mm-hmm. of modes of transit. And, and personally, I think that um, autonomous vehicles are... A little bit scary in some people's eyes but um, I personally think they could be a huge benefit Um, one way and 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 there's one study that shows that um, if we have uh, autonomous vehicles um, you know basically operating we we can minimize the amount of vehicles on the road by upwards of 40 to 50 percent right because our vehicles currently right now are sitting parked right more than eighty percent of the time. Oh sure, so, yeah, we so barely use them. We barely, in, use in them. theory, They're yeah, sitting eighty percent of the time. And if you can have vehicles that are moving you to and from, right, um, you can minimize the amount of vehicles that you actually need. And and so, you know, a lot of people say that the Uber and Lyft's of the world are basically trying to gather data through their current model uh, to be the operating system for the future autonomous vehicle, mm-hmm. right? And and then be able to wake up one morning and say, "Man, I need to go." Uh, into WPRK, let me, you know, Uber Order
1: up a, a car, basically, yeah. Some type of autonomous
2: yeah. vehicle. And you could, you know, carpool and share it, and mm-hmm. th- there are going to be different revenue models. What we're excited about is not just your single automobile, which a lot of people think about, but also 18-wheeler um, freight, uh, bus transit, um, as well as bike and pedestrian technologies that that interact with uh, these autonomous vehicles that make are it that around us, right, and, make it yeah. safer for us. Um, there's definitely a safety play there. And uh, we're in the process now uh, um, working with Lynx uh, to utilize the downtown bus rapid transit as a kind of a testing ground for different types of vehicles. So I brought down different electric, battery electric bus uh, mm-hmm. companies to, to do a demo. We're in the process of, of trying to pilot those buses. And we're also talking about an autonomous electric shuttle that could very well uh, replace the downtown 35- and 40-foot buses into the future and be able to get us uh, to and from in the downtown core, you know, all autonomous and zero emission. And I think uh, we want to be a testbed here in Orlando for um, embracing that type of technological revolution and hopefully enabling an electrified, cleaner, safer uh, transportation network.
1: What I like about that is the electric buses rarely explode if they go under 55 miles an hour. So first of all, (laughs) that's fantastic. Right.
0: Uh, From a safety perspective,
1: from a safety perspective, yeah, 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 Uh, and that happens mainly in L.A. when Keanu Reeves is around. But the other thing that I think is interesting is I had a brand ambassador for Ford who was on here Mm -hmm. a few months ago, and she was talking really about sort of this move towards autonomous cars and electric cars. Is Americans have a distrust of technology? So we see a lot of movies, a lot of the pop culture, television, and stuff. Mm -hmm. Is technology taking over? Technology doing all these horrible things. Whereas if you look at a culture like South Korea, uh, a lot of their pop culture revolves around technology making life better for them. Sure. So if you want to talk to the mayor or anybody else in the government, if we want to start doing, like, uh, movies and television shows about how technology is great Mm. so we can get everybody here to embrace autonomous cars and other things— I'm your man for that. Right, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious. I don't know if you. So if you can comment on this as a private citizen, okay. and I don't know, this might be a, a little bit out of um, uh, out of your jurisdiction. But how did you feel about the Orlando flag uh, redesign? Um, because I know as a <laughs> as a city employee, you probably have to sure uh, say one thing. But I'm wondering how much. I, I thought it was necessary. I,
2: I thought it was necessary I, for I the evolution. From, yeah, I, I, grinned at it. Yeah. I grinned at it. And I also like the process that our communications team went through in order to uh, really get public input and feedback and, and voting and, and really uh, have people take ownership of, of the evolution. I mean, Orlando has evolved tremendously in the last two decades, let alone 10 years, right? Right. And, and I think that the old flag... Um, was great, but, but a little outdated and, and things, you know, we're, we're in a time here in central Florida where we're really trying to rebrand or at least find um, a true identity outside mm-hmm. of just theme parks and entertainment. And, and, and so this evolution of this flag, I think is one critical step in that direction.
1: And we had a precedent. So the, the flag that we currently have came from a contest. So mm-hmm. a public contest back sure. in 1980, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and apparently then we had to prove that we had buildings, so that's why we put buildings on there. And so I think we can move on from that. Yeah. All right, very good. Uh, Volvo, how do you feel about Volvo? They just announced, uh, had a big announcement. So I think by 20, well, basically they're going to start. Phasing out the uh, gas and diesel engines. 2019.
2: 2019. Yeah, two huge I think uh, news points for electric vehicles last week. One was the Volvo move, and one was France saying, uh, you know, that by mid twenties, uh, by 2025, they're they're going to basically eliminate any type of fossil based you know vehicle that's, right, that's yeah. moving forward. Um, and Sweden, you know, shortly followed after. And there's a couple of other countries. It's actually turning into a little movement, but. I'm a huge fan uh, of that. I think that um, the electric, electrification of transportation is inevitable. And I think in order for us to truly address some of the critical challenges as it relates to air quality and quality of life and, and climate change, we need to begin to embrace um, electric technologies. Um, hybrid first, plug-in hybrid electric, and hopefully fully battery electric. Uh, my you know, assumption is that 30, 40 years down the road, battery electric – vehicles won't necessarily be what's powering us. I think it's going to be hydrogen fuel cell and in fact um, hydrogen electric vehicles and a lot of people think, well hydrogen, hydrogen bombs is that safe? Um, we're riding down the road currently in a bomb in basic an right, explosive, basic explosive yeah. bomb but hydrogen fuel cell is actually an electric vehicle that is um, powered in terms of the electricity by fusing hydrogen and oxygen gas. To create an electron and water, and and I think um, when you look at the energy density, when you look at the amount that you can store and how far you can go with that, it's going to get to a point where you know the hydrogen fuel cell will probably take o- over traditional lithium ion or battery electric. Oh, if vehicle. they can,
1: yeah, <laughs> if they can perfect it, it'll be so cheap yeah. and
2: so clean very uh, that it'll be fairly ridiculous. Hydrogen so, is the most abundant element in the universe. Right? I think so, what we
1: could also do is get the hipsters uh, like myself to go ahead and try horse and buggy again and maybe <laughs> just move just towards go back, that. Move, go back yeah. Moves. So if you guys, as far as the transportation goes, if you can sure. account for horse and buggy lanes Got it. Uh, throughout the
2: city, You'll I think do. that
1: would be really helpful. Now, mainly down Mills 50, the milk district,
2: you know, where we hang out. Sure. Essentially. I actually have a slide in some of my presentations where it's, it's, New York City, 1900 Easter morning, right? And you look down Fifth Avenue and it's nothing but horse and buggies. And Mm -hmm. the question is, just find the vehicle, right? And there's literally one car like way in in the the back, right? In the whole thing. 13 years later, same morning, same street, and it says, find the horse and buggy. And there's not a single horse and buggy. That thing, and back then, of course, they had a different emissions problem, right? They had literally crap that was going to be at least ten stories high by 2050. Some estimates said, yeah. And and you had this disruption of technology that came in in the early 1900s that literally transformed the way that we move today. And and I feel that we're in the same evolution as it relates to how cities are beginning to operate and uh, embrace the technology revolution that we're in today with smartphones and distributed solar and Mm -hmm. storage and smart buildings and these autonomous vehicles. And truthfully, um, you know, we're, we're in this kind of smart cities evolution that I think is a really exciting place to be.
1: Very good. All right. So switching back over to you being a millennial, did you have to learn cursive when you were a kid? I did. All right, how do you feel about it? Because it's starting to come back. There's, there's Schools and states are starting to require it again.
2: I like cursive. I mean, yeah. when I write, I kind of write half print, half cursive. It's kind of weird. My traditional print, is like half print. So, like, my R's are cursive. My E's are usually cursive. Like, it's kind of weird. My S's, you know, it's all I'll print. But I'll usually have a little cursive in it. So, so it's like I, a
1: code. It's like you have coded messages just off of your handwriting.
2: Yeah, it basically. <laughs> <laughs> you got to decipher what i'm trying to say right
1: exactly <laughs> exactly yes that's why all my uh notes i write and i cut out letters from magazines and just do it that way so I'll... they all look like ransom notes <laughs> uh so then
2: how do you feel uh, i probably know the answer to this but how do you feel about tiny houses grin or barrett i i grin at tiny houses i think the move towards smaller spaces like micro housing is needed right in a, in a in an age where we're exploding in population we're mm-hmm. supposed to reach. 11 billion by mid-century we're already at you know seven and a half billion people on this planet i think that we're um, very much in need of minimizing the the american utopian idea of where we live and you look towards places like japan or, or china where where they're living in 500 square feet of a household they're getting very creative about how they you know, live within that space, and the tiny home revolution is, is really refreshing, in my opinion. And I think um, we can fit more people in smaller amounts of places and not use as many resources, and I right. think that's the whole point of moving towards a more sustainable lifestyle.
1: Well, it's also about living outside of that space, right? Like, mm-hmm. you can't spend all your time in that space because it's smaller. You can't store as much stuff, so you don't have to buy all right. of those things,
2: uh, simpler it, living voluntary simplicity right like
1: but it said. also pushes you out the door to become more social to do more things outside Enjoy like your natural yeah, world yeah oh, yeah yeah. Definitely. it's weird I don't like that last part but other than that I like the idea of tiny houses um I'm kidding uh so grin or Barrett this will be the last one for this section and then we will play a song here if I can get I got a DJ I got a separate DJ for today uh
2: cobbler the dessert how do you feel about cobbler the dessert grin or Barrett Barrett I'm not a big cobbler. Oh no! How about yeah. pie? Um, I like some pie. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I like key lime pie a lot. That okay. actually used to be it replaced my traditional cake for my birthday growing up. Really, key lime pie. Real cake. South Florida. It, of that makes sense. In yeah. in Miami, was in the Keys a lot. I used to love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the
1: real stuff, the actual if it was green, then you knew that it probably wasn't real right. key lime. Yeah,
2: not, not the true, not the not the Publix type. Right, right, but, right. But like, yeah. You know, homemade, Although we love Publix,
1: right? Well, this sucks. The,
2: the subs are good. Yeah. That
1: was a good campaign, <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So, now, go, so what is your
2: favorite? So, Key Lime sounds like it's up there. What is your favorite dessert? I'd say creme brulee. Oh, ah, okay. I have to say creme brulee. Very nice. Yeah. And I've been, you know, my partner and I, we've been going around uh, to different restaurants trying to see what has the best creme brulee. And so far, Marlowe's Tavern in Waterford Lakes yeah. has the best creme brulee I've had in a while. Oh, because so,
1: there's one here, too. Is it the same uh, restaurant so. chain? Yeah. Probably. Okay. All right. So we'll have so to check go. it out. I'm starving now. So okay. we'll go check it out right, right after during this break, I think. We'll go check it out. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for doing that. Uh, so we've got a lot more with uh, Chris Castro from the city of Orlando to talk about. And we'll be right back after this song on WP- WPRK Winter Park, Florida. You're listening to a certain degree. <laughs> And we're back. You're listening to a certain degree on WPRK, Florida, Winter Park, Florida, as a matter of fact, is where the location is. And we just heard from the Magnetic Fields from their album, 50 Song Memoir. Uh, This is, they did a song for every year, I think. And so this is number 81, How to Play the Synthesizer. So that was an interesting, speaking of synthesizers, I'm here with Chris Castro. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. And I don't know how that was a segue, but it was. So we'll just go with it. We'll pretend Perfect. nothing happened. We'll ignore it. We'll definitely not talk about it on the air like I'm doing right now. So Chris uh, is here from the city of Orlando, but I wanted to talk to you about the stuff that you you may have started, and this is one of the things I wanted to ask about before you started at the city, mm-hmm. but Ideas for Us and the three main sort of lines, the pillars, if you will, sure. of what Ideas for Us is. So Ideas for Us is, uh, you can learn more about it at ideasforus.org but it encompasses the Hive Orlando uh, Fleet Farming, which I think a lot of people have probably heard of Mm -hmm. uh, out of the three, and then the Solutions Fund. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit? Let's start with the Hive Orlando.
2: Sure. So um, I think even stepping a little bit further back, ideas ideas for us um, is a brainchild of myself and a couple of friends back when I was a student at the University of Central Florida in 2008. So we just turned nine years old this past June. Um, and the, the idea was that um, our university was moving down UCF, was and, and most of them were moving down a unsustainable trajectory. And we felt that um, by working with the administration and the operations of the campus, we can start to change the tides and, and really move towards making it a showcase university for sustainability. And so one of the first things we did is we rallied the troops and we got president hit to sign what's called the american college and universities president's climate commitment it's a kind of a mouthful but at the end of the day we wanted to commit towards becoming a carbon neutral sustainable campus right the energy that we're getting coming from 100 percent renewables the waste that we're generating being diverted nearly 100 percent from the landfill water reclaimed food from a local you know a geographic scope and so we started to build out uh ideas right and and um and what evolved was an interdisciplinary student group at UCF that was bringing together legal studies, communications majors, environmental studies, engineering, a whole, whole group of mm-hmm. students who are all trying to come up with projects and initiatives and campaigns that would move us down that path of becoming a sustainable university. And, um, it was really exciting because we started to really do some cool things. We we created an energy challenge competition between students who living living on campus in the dorms. It was called Kill a Watt, and students were kind of over a two-and-a-half-month competition trying to kill watts and save energy and, and get scholarships by doing so. We ended up saving over $50,000 in two months just with a $5,000 investment from the university to just encourage conservation and do workshops and things like that and so that
1: average year over year energy usage went down by fifty thousand dollars just by doing that
2: yep it was a it was basically over a five year kind of baseline period Mm -hmm. we saw reductions of 15 to 20 percent in certain buildings uh we also started and instituted an entire on-campus recycling program which wasn't there prior Uh, The student garden that's at UCF helped to mobilize that. And then one of the major projects, if you've been to the UCF main campus, is a large solar array outside of the gym, the Rec and Wellness Center.
0: Mm -hmm. It's
2: 107 kilowatts. We ended up finding a grant. I found a grant. I wrote the grant. We ended up winning $750,000 and then went through the whole process of system design, engineering design, commissioning, procurement, actually putting on hard hats and installing these panels. I mean, it was unbelievable, the experience. And, and that model of, of building a student group started to gain interest through social media by other friends and peers at different universities. Penn State, FIU, UM, FSU, you name it. I mean, over 25 universities in the first year had reached out saying, hey, we want to create an Ideas chapter. And so that was really the impetus behind where we are today. Today, Ideas for Us is an international nonprofit 501c3 and we're also accredited by the United Nations. We're the only UN NGO in Central Florida, and our whole purpose is to develop, fund, and scale solutions that are solving global environmental issues at the local level, Mm -hmm. and um, have built this network of now more than 200 different chapters and affiliates um, across 25 countries, headquartered here in Orlando, but working all over the world, in Africa, in South Asia, um, in Europe, in the Americas, and um, all literally started off of one student organization at the University of Central Florida. Um, what has evolved over the years is four and a half years ago, uh, we, we saw that many of us who were at the local level, at the UCF level, uh, had graduated and had moved on and were still engaged in organizing here in Orlando. And so we uh, developed this think tank, this sustainability think tank called the Hive Orlando. And it, every single Wednesday, every first, sorry, every first Wednesday of the month, right, since February of 2013, we have literally, not skipped the beat, been hosting a think tank, think and do tank, where individuals of all ages and all disciplines come together, very similar to how we started at the university level, mm-hmm. and we pick a topic in uh, in sustainability, really fr- using the framework of what we call the f- sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And we pick one of those SDG goals, and we bring in a guest speaker, subject matter expert in the space, usually a partner organization we want to work with, and they engage the audience in education and then these breakout activities that uses human-centered design to come up with projects or potential solutions, right, right that right. could be implemented measured in terms of impact and then scaled to other communities that are hosting hives and we've done hives also all over the world we have chapters that use it as a monthly program we've done it at the United Nations headquarters multiple times um, Canada Germany have been in Brazil hosting it it's a it's now a, a really cool um, a workshop for conferences as well so um, so the hive has really turned into a really um, it's turned into a great community building tool I think in Orlando that's brought together people of like minds who are trying to solve problems locally.
1: Let me ask you this before we get to uh, to fleet farming, because mm-hmm. I, I think one of the generational differences, I don't buy into a lot of the generational differences between millennials and uh, Gen X and baby boomers. Sure. Because I think that for the most part, you know, I, I think the big thing that we talk about uh, in, the, in the media is that, oh, there's all these things you need to do to keep millennials in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think, obviously, it's all changed, so you're not going to keep a job for 30 years, first of all. But everything you talk about for to keeping millennials, I'm like, I'm, I'm Gen X. I i am would like those things, too. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it, it really becomes this sort of, you can't treat everybody differently all the time. But what I, I think is intimidating to someone like me, who was raised in a sort of, um, uh, maybe it's not generational, maybe it's just growing up Greek and being competitive with everybody mm. is that you don't mm. share ideas, mm. right? Like you come up with your idea. You kind of hold it to the chest. You hold it, yeah, and yeah. you try to run with it, but you're very secretive about it. Sure. Whereas I think none of that, none of the stuff that you guys have accomplished would have worked if you had done that.
2: No, it's 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 like the Hive is a model to crowdsource people's ideas, right? And come once a month to come and share your perspective. And everybody has a different perspective, which is amazing. We have somebody who's a 70-year-old, uh, working with somebody who's 17, not a part of the same family who probably would never speak to each other ever. And they're at this table, a round table with a whiteboard and they're being asked to basically develop some type of idea or solution that solves hunger, right? Or that solves clean energy. This past Wednesday we did, you know, the topic of clean energy, which is SDG seven and, and the, um, the application. So that the breakout last Wednesday was what are some unique and creative applications for renewable energy in addition to just putting solar on a rooftop, right? What are some other really creative things? And people were kind of coming up with some wild ideas. Uh, One of them that I really liked that's actually being tested and nobody realized is floating solar, actually floating solar arrays on top of water bodies, retention ponds that are within our neighborhoods or lake bodies that are just sitting there. And um, and so there's actually a move towards you know, floating solar as a means of not taking up green space to put up solar, but but actually using uh, existing properties, carports. They came up with and, and other really cool applications, not just for solar, um, but but for other types of energy systems. So so the hive is really there to be a community building tool that crowdsources. Instead of funding, we crowdsource people's ideas, and then through uh, an organizing group, there's 10 of us. We we try to take those ideas that are heard and we organize an event or an initiative that, that helps build upon those ideas that were collectively generated from the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and fleet farming, which may be a great segue, is a prime example of some uh, an initiative or a solution that came out of a room of people who are trying to solve the challenge of urban agriculture and local food systems in a space where land is extremely high in value. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of it that's vacant, and we need to figure out how to solve this food challenge that we're facing you know and and so out of the audience came um you know a glimpse or you know a brief idea of of what fleet farming you know is today what
1: if we could do this and so started running with that and Mm -hmm. and just for the people who don't know it uh which i would imagine there's a few who are listening right now could you just briefly explain what fleet farming uh does and what it has accomplished to date
2: sure fleet farming is a is a program that's trying to redefine local food systems in general, right? And we do that in a couple of different ways. One of the most popular ways is the concept of growing food, not lawns. We actually have this hybrid CSA, and for those who don't know what a CSA is, it's a community-supported agricultural system, um, and we hybridize it because instead of you buying into a food box and getting a food box once a week, right? And you paying once a month, uh, people are donating their lawns Mm -hmm. and we're able to essentially turn their lawn into an in-ground organic farm. And as a repayment, the homeowner's getting produce every single week that's being grown on their lawn that they don't have to maintain at all, right? Our team a fleet of farmers are going around the neighborhoods on bicycles and literally maintaining these plots for these homeowners. And, and then we take the excess produce, of course they're not even touching, you know, two to 3% of what's grown. Right, We right. take the excess, we wash it, and we sell it to different farmers markets and to restaurants. And we create this very hyper-local uh, food system, literally within a three-mile radius of where it's grown is being sold. And um, we started this out in Audubon Park three um, three three and a half years ago now, and a uh, year after the hive started, so February 2014, and we started with five homes. Today, we have over 20 households that have offered their land to grow food. We've essentially created an agri hood inside of Audubon Park. So mm-hmm. if you start driving around Audubon, you literally see a plot here. Two, two doors down, you see another plot in their front yard. And it's not just front yards, but it's yard farming in general. It's basically turning lawns, front lawns or back lawns, into in-ground organic farms. Uh, we started to do the research. We found that there's 40 million acres of lawns in this country right now that is just using resources like fertilizers and a ton of water to stay green and that's having a negative effect on the ecosystem right we see all this algae bloom that's happening eutrophication as they call it fish kills a lot of that is, is because of the consequences of us fertilizing our lawns it raining and running off into the water systems and we said well how can we solve this and at the same time grow food and um, that really came about. And um, so now we're, we're really trying to create a model for other communities to scale fleet farming uh, to other parts of the world, not just the country, but other parts of the world.
1: Well, what I like about this, too, is you can apply it to golf courses, I think, pretty easily as, sure. a, bad, as a bad business idea, <laughs> which uh, unfortunately we won't have a chance to do today. but. You could, if you really wanted to, because I think that that would help them keep on course. Because you hit that cabbage, it's going to bounce back, right, 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 onto <laughs> right. the fairway. So I think that helps, uh, and that would help with my game specifically, right? Yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm yeah. terrible. So put some cabbage around your golf courses, right? That's a I good. It's a good what?
2: use of that land. although my god! Right, it's a huge opportunity for us. And there's a lot of golf courses that are going bankrupt and and that could be turned into Perfect. an oasis of urban farming. Right? I love it. Um, I love everything about that. One of the cool things about Fleet is that it's very much also a community building tool. Mm-hmm. Ideas for us is all about helping people build capacity wherever they are, whether you're in rural Togo or rural Democratic Republic of the Congo, or you're in Winter Park, right? And, and oftentimes we build community around disasters. Something happens that's traumatic and all of a sudden now we bring everybody yeah. together and now we're talking versus we want to be proactive at that. And I think that's something that Ideas for Us has really um, done well in. If we've done anything, it's really built a community of people who are, who are looking at Orlando as an opportunity to improve quality of life, to improve public health. To, to protect the environment and natural resources and at the same time to drive the local economy the way that fleet farming has done. Um, and so I was getting to the point that every two weeks we host a bike ride, that everybody out there listening is, is welcome to join. It's called the Swarm. And the Swarm is uh, we meet at East End Market every mm-hmm. uh, second and fourth Sunday of the month. So we just held a swarm yesterday with about 30 people. And um, every second and fourth Sunday, people come out on their bicycles and we literally teach urban farming through this edible education bike ride where we go around to the neighborhoods. We teach them how to how to till the land. We teach them how to sow seeds and, and harvest proper. And then, um, you know, all of that is taken to the market and sold to different restaurants. And people we've seen, we've engaged over 1,500 people in the last three years who've come out, signed waivers. We have them stacked and, and people are coming out to. To, to basically learn how to grow food. And that's one of the biggest missions that I think we're, we're fulfilling is farming farmers. We need more people out there who are trying to uh, minimize the impact that they have on the greater industrial agricultural complex, which is harming the planet and people more than we think, and, and minimize that, bring it back local, create a local economy, and start using underutilized land to grow right. food, right? Well, and show people how easy it is to do. Very, yeah. Yeah. It because it's, it's not, I didn't study you know, vegetable farming. No, not at all. But we just tried it and it was experiential learning and we did. I mean, you just watch some YouTube videos. There are some great <laughs> YouTube videos out there, in fact, and and good resources like our good friend Curtis Stone uh, with Green City Acres. Cur- Curtis Stone's an amazing urban farmer. He has a YouTube channel. Uh, you can watch him and, and learn a lot of the 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 tricks of the trade right of, of growing food and um you know he's one of our mentors he's on the advisory board mm-hmm. for fleet farming and and you know we see him certainly as somebody who we look up to and there's some local celebrities as well John Rife is is an inspiration for us John actually pitched us the the initial idea of fleet farming before we brought it to the Hive and he said what if we start creating this kind of local urban farming program here in Orlando how does it work we don't know well let's bring it to the Hive let's get the community. To put input into this initial seed that you planted and and ideas for us kind of took the concept over and it wouldn't have been uh, a reality had it not been for for John
1: very good well we'll have to have John on because I think he's got his uh, I I feel like he's on the other side he's such a good guy that he has to be have like the super villain sort of alternate personality right (laughs) right so (laughs) I really like that idea about John if you're listening John and I know you are we're going to have to have you on the show, and I'm going to find that. Make it happen. I'm going to find that supervillain inside of you. So let's talk real quick about the Solutions Fund, so sort of the last part yeah. of ideas for us. Then Pretty we're going to take a break, and then we'll uh, talk about the city because this is this is just you on the side. So it I is don't know, me on the side. I don't know how you have time to do all this <laughs> stuff, especially, again, with uh, baby two months old. She's two months. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you've got you do a bunch of stuff for the city, Uh, And you're doing all this. So I don't know how you find the time. You obviously don't sleep.
2: Uh, I I try to, but it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So let's talk about the Solutions Fund. We'll play a song and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the stuff that's going on in the city, some of the exciting things there.
2: Yeah. So Solutions Fund, really quickly, this is a really exciting evolution of ideas for us. And it's really a micro-granting initiative. We oftentimes hear about Mm -hmm. micro-loans that are being given out and repaid. And what we were seeing is that a lot of our chapters around the world um, needed a small amount of funding, between 500 and and $1,000, to implement a solution that could be measured and could be scaled within their community. And um, ideas started to initially identify other grants that we would team them up with and help them write the proposal, and then they get funded. And we saw that there was a lot of foundations out there and corporate sponsors who were saying, hey, you all have an interesting model. You can be a conduit for large dollars that we have and impl- you know allocate those dollars to small boots on the ground solutions that are being implemented and could be scaled to other places around the world to solve the same type of problems
1: once you have that proof of concept once you have the proof of concept yeah, you yeah, can yeah.
2: scale it and and we you know obviously had to figure out what are the key performance indicators what are the what are the ways we can measure impact and what are the impact you know measurements that we're trying to to obtain to show that hey we actually move the needle on on hunger in this community or move the needle on reforestation or clean water and sanitation, whatever it might be. So, essentially, Ideas for Us uh, last year launched the Solutions Fund, which is a micro-granting program where individuals around the world, up to four times per year, can um, write a proposal, two ideas, and apply to get up to $1,000 in funding. And this funding essentially goes towards projects again that are working towards achieving the Sustainable Development Goals, so the 17 global goals that the world is working towards. And within those, we ask them what are the what are the KPIs, what are your measurement impacts, mm-hmm. and and then uh, from there we work with them um, and and team them up with a solutions manager in order to foster the development of that idea um, and uh, consult with them, and then of course um, get some some documentation and some feedback right, on right, the implementation right. of those projects. And so we're, we're excited that we just actually funded this past month um, um, 150 solar lanterns in a community of the Democratic Republic of the Congo that has zero penetration of electricity in their community. I mean, none. So you're talking literacy rates. You're talking um, the ability for the community in general um, to to continue to develop. It's been hindered by the fact that they don't have power. Energy equals life, and and so we're now we've partnered with a company, and we're deploying 150 of these charging stations. Uh, we just also funded a, a reforestation project in Togo. Worked with the local community, identified an area that would that had a lot of uh, runoff essentially mm-hmm. because they had deforested the area for for timber and for resources. We're going back in, and we've engaged local schools to plant with students to plant these, uh, you know, to plant a uh, small forest. Um, that's there in Togo, and hopefully help regenerate that that area. And so the Solutions Fund—it's really exciting. It's both you know people here in the states can apply as well as internationally. But every quarter we're trying to uh, allocate uh, funding, um, and the, the idea is that every year we give out at least thirty thousand dollars or thirty projects, um, and um, you know really use this as a way of evolving ideas into an environmental philanthropy. Right? We're we're moving towards being. A philanthropy that's trying to build an endowment that right. takes some of that interest money that would help us to perpetuate funding around the world for people who have a creative idea to, to make our world more sustainable.
1: What I like about that is that, you know, and it's 30 a year, but you're, you may not see the results right, right Immediately. away. Immediately. Right. Sure. So it might be that a year or two down the line, you're looking at this project from, you know, 2016 mm-hmm. and saying, okay, it looks like this one worked. We could do this better Let's X, y, let, let's try ways. it in three more places. Exactly. Um or maybe it didn't work, but at least you sure. tried something, right? Like Exactly. The solar lanterns thing might not work in that in that particular region, but it might be something similar to that. Sure. Or you might have another project that's going on. That's really
2: great. Yeah, one of one of the challenges is that the United Nations has these I keep talking about the sustainable development goals. So if you haven't heard of them, definitely look them up. Uh, GlobalGoals.org, and and so these 17 goals were, were agreed upon by all 197 countries around the world that they're the most important goals for us to end poverty, eradicate inequalities, and uh, solve the threats of climate change. Those mm-hmm. are basically the themes behind these goals. Well, the goals have 169 targets, and they have 236 indicators to identify whether or not we're actually moving the needle on any one particular goal. The challenge is these indicators and targets are at the nation state level. Right. The so liberty is so high yeah. that any project at the local level can't even be related, right? So we actually looked at all of these indicators and we looked at the projects that we've already done and funded in our history and said, how do these tie, how does kilowatt actually tie in with clean energy access, goal number seven, right? Does it, can we actually contribute to it? And And there wasn't a way, and so the U.N., is in this process of trying to identify organizations like Ideas who are working on very local projects in sustainability and and develop local indicators that can tie into the nation-state indicators and eventually see whether or not we're moving the needle Mm -hmm. on on the goals. And um, it's exciting because we're one of the only organizations in the world that's doing it. Um, and, uh, and our team, uh, led by Jamie Joyce, uh, she, she's the Solutions Fund Manager, uh, Penelope Canan, Dr. Penelope Canan, who, who really was my inspiration to start ideas um, at, at UCF, um, they're, they're both leading the charge on a committee that's reviewing these indicators, that's reviewing the projects, and that's trying to get things funded around the world. So it's, it's, it's really an exciting time for ideas, and we see this being uh, really a, a strong future for us moving forward.
1: Very nice. Well, I could talk to you all day about this, but we have limited time and I do want to get to the stuff about the city. So we're going to play a quick song and then uh, a couple of uh, commercials and we'll be right back with Chris Castro. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. And uh, you're listening to A Certain Degree on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. And welcome back. You're listening to A Certain Degree on WPRK, Winter Park, Florida. That was a song called On the Level from Mac DeMarco. From his album, This Old Dog. Ah, this old dog. That's me, I guess. Good morning. My name is Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is To a Certain Degree, and I do this every week with a special guest. This week, my very special guest is Chris Castro. Uh, We have a few minutes left with Chris. Chris is obviously incredibly busy. He's got a lot of stuff going on. If you missed any of the show, we'll have it up online on my website, toacertaindegree.com. And uh, uh, ideasforus.org would be the site to go to to learn a little bit more about the stuff that uh, Chris does on the side. But then we have the city of Orlando. So, Chris, um, you started working at the city back in 2016? 2014. Oh, 2014. Yep,
2: 2014. So you were, uh,
1: I think you became director in 2016. That's correct. Okay, gotcha. So, 2014, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You come in and you say... None of, you guys are not doing it right.
2: Bring me in and I will fix everything. <laughs> kind of, but not really. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I may be prone to hyperbole on occasion. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, prior to 2014, I actually started a, another company that we haven't talked about. It's called Citizen Energy back in 2012. It's an energy consulting firm. So I was basically helping businesses um be more efficient, more energy and water efficient. I was bringing in technologies. We were retrofitting lights to LED. We were putting solar up. In fact, uh, the the company still operates today in Washington, D.C., so it's a D.C. metro uh, company at this point in time. Um, but back then, I had started it here in Orlando. as was bootstrapping right out of UCF. I took out a loan, actually, on my last semester so that I could kind of pocket some of that money and hold me over. And it literally held me over for a year and a half. Um, and, um, and and I'm still paying back those loans, so sometimes you got to take a risk, right? Mm-hmm. But I was doing a lot of the clean energy work here in Orlando, working with businesses, retrofitting parking garages, and um, my predecessor, John Ipple, who was the director of sustainability at the time, contacted me and said, Hey, Chris, we just, we just were awarded this incredible grant. It's called the city energy project. Mm-hmm. And the whole effort was to create an ecosystem of policies and programs that helped to make Orlando a leader in energy efficiency and to dramatically increase the efficiency of, of the built environment, primarily large commercial and multifamily buildings. And um, this was one of 10 cities in the country that received this grant. And so we were the only one in the state of Florida. And so he says, I want you to come in and meet with Mayor Dyer and myself and kind of talk about this initiative. I said, Well, that sounds like an awesome opportunity. And here I'm thinking, well, I'm a couple months out from literally moving to Washington, D.C., where my company at the time had a little pilot office, but it was kicking butt. It was literally out-competing in revenues uh, from here in Florida, and I had started a year and a half prior. And there was just a marketplace up there. There was There's a culture up there of, of this stuff, right? So I'm here thinking, i got a couple months left, I'm going to leave, and I get pulled into this meeting, and they talk about the whole entire opportunity, and I said, this sounds like a gold mine. In fact... The policies and programs that they wanted me to implement in orlando were exactly what was driving my company in washington dc
1: so you went into this meeting and it was basically an interview
2: Kind of. I mean, it was a pitch to me to say, "Hey, would you apply to this thing?" Because of gotcha. course it had to be an open application. Right. And right I applied, right. and over 150 people applied for the position. But they kind of knew that I was the guy locally who was really driving energy efficiency and renewables at the at the business level. And they were like, "You're doing it. We hear about you doing it." We want, you know, we would be interested to bring you on board if, you know, you could apply and get through the whole hoops and hurdles and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So, I so ended- a month
1: and a half later, you would have been in D.C. I would have been, been in D.C. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't
2: have yeah. been in Orlando anymore. And uh, and I was kind of torn because I love Orlando. right? Yeah. And, and it's my home, in fact. Uh, and so I ended up applying. And getting this position, which was amazing. I was a sustainability project manager uh, underneath the director, and I was appointed by the mayor as a senior energy advisor for him, uh, for the city in general to start moving on creating an e- again an, an ecosystem of different initiatives that really moved the needle. When I first got here, we were um, I one of the first things I did was sign us up for this city scorecard. Is basically this organization that compares cities on how efficient they are. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is perfect. Let's just figure out what our baseline is, and then let's kind of move that way. Yeah. Well we were 30th in the country, um, which, you know, I thought out of the top 51 MSAs, we were 30th. We're okay, but why is Boston number one? Why is San Francisco and Chicago and D.C. and New York? Why are these in the top five? Like, right. what's going on here? What are they doing, and what have they implemented that we haven't, and we're far behind on? So I started to do these peer-to-peer meetings with all these cities, and I, I identified a wheel. I call it a wheel because my diagram is basically a wheel with a whole bunch of different, you know, you know, m- nodes to that wheel, mm-hmm. and and they broke out into these policies and programs that really dealt with identifying market barriers and and solving them through policy and um and so my you know my whole effort over the last you know three years prior to last year was to really build that out and make orlando a leader in that space and just this past year we applied 2017 for that city scorecard again and we jumped 10 points we went from 30th in the country to 20th 20th in the country um, most energy improved city in the nation for energy efficiency and it was a whole slew of different things that we did um to get us to that point so it's pretty who who did we beat who did we uh, skip over
1: because i'm always Um, like competition what i like about this sort of thing and uh one of the other things that you're doing is the battle of the buildings and i'm sure we'll talk about that as well but uh is that competition Mm -hmm. because i think until you add that to it until you add that element it it, it, it becomes a lot more real for for people. It becomes a lot more easy to understand
2: sure, uh, for people. Yeah. So Cincinnati c- cities like Cincinnati oh, we beat over Houston we should, and uh, Dallas absolute and, beat and, down. and right, right. Exactly. Minneapolis. We, we, we definitely beat over some, some heavy hitting cities who were moving in that space. Right. Right. But, right. but um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty ruthless when it comes down to the, to competition. Right. <laughs> okay. And, and, and making sure that we're leading the charge. And so I, uh, you know, I was very ambitious in, in my approach and, and I think, um, I'm one to multitask, obviously with all the things that I've going on. Mm-hmm. We just talked about ideas. I sit on eight other nonprofit boards, have this company and full time with the city. Uh-huh. Right? So I'm like, so I got a, a lot going on and I do you have
1: to... clones,
2: <laughs> I think is what the question is. There's somebody at the city right now <laughs> who's glued, right? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, I wish, trust me. I wish I'm just really good at juggling. So, um, Long story short, we you know two really important things that we, that we implemented that got us to this, you know, this this jump, right? One of them was this concept of, of addressing the finance barrier that people have. A lot of people want to have a better, healthier, more energy-efficient building. Oh, sure. Right? Or have solar on the roof. Who wouldn't want that? Right? Who wouldn't, yeah. right? The biggest challenge is, well, how much is the upfront cost? I know there's a return, and the return is fairly reasonable, but, but I, where am I going to get the upfront cost? To make that happen right and so um we started to really focus on financing and i ended up uh, passing a very historic policy called pace property assessed clean energy and pace also happens to be here in winter park as well pace is a really cool tool where a homeowner or a business owner can get 100 percent of the money to make these improvements and then repay those improvements or repay that money on the property tax bill one time per year so instead of it being a loan to you, Nick, right, it's an assessment to your house that lives at 2,500 Montana Street, right? And How did you know where I live? That's I just, weird. Yes, yes, oh, so you live in the city. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so your house basically is the one taking out the loan, right? And this is a really creative mechanism because as an assessment, you can stretch out this money. You can amortize it, they call it, as far as 20 years. So if I take out 10,000 dollars, right? And I put, you know, new LEDs and a brand new HVAC, you know, AC system. And I'm going to save 1200 bucks over the, the entire year by doing that, mm-hmm. right? I'll save $100 a month just by making these improvements. So 1200 bucks. And I stretch that 10,000 over 10 years. Now I'm paying $1000 per year. Now I'm literally cash flow positive from day 1. Right? Without needing to take out my own savings or take out a loan from the bank, I literally went through this other mechanism called PACE. And so we found that there's ways of creating these cash flow positive scenarios where you don't have to risk your own money. You can actually find money that's available that we provided. There's $500 million right now in Orlando that's available for this type of improvement. And any homeowner or business owner can now get New LED lighting, or building controls, or solar, or hot water heaters, or AC systems that are certain efficiency, and you can get the money up front and then repay over time. So it's actually really, really neat, and that jumped us a, a number of points because not many cities actually have pace financing up and running. And it was it had been talked about back in the day in right. Orlando, but never moved forward. It always hit these roadblocks and never would actually, uh, never actually move forward to policy. And I was able to kind of well, take the no. book off the bookshelf. Yeah dust it off, figure out what the problem was, and then move straight forward with it. Right, then the
1: roadblocks hit Chris Castro when they were
2: done. Right, yeah, basically, just (laughs) right through them. I don't ever want to get in your way on anything.
1: (laughs) I feel like you would just completely destroy me.
2: I'd say the second really important thing is this concept of what they call benchmarking and transparency, Mm -hmm. which is this policy where, think about it, if you go downtown to rent an apartment today, there's no way for you actually understand how much you're going to spend in utilities on top of your rent. When we look at the rent, it's like an apartment A is a thousand bucks a month. An apartment B is $1,200 a month. If I'm choosing and they're in the same general vicinity, I'm going to probably choose the thousand dollars a month, right? I'm going to save over two grand a year by choosing that one. Right. But what they don't don't know is that the thousand dollars a month is oftentimes two and $300 in utilities. And the other one is less than a hundred dollars in utilities. And when you look at the total cost to live, it's actually cheaper for you to choose the more expensive rent than it is for you to choose the cheaper rent, right? Because of the cost of operations, the utilities, usually the cheaper rents, the older, less efficient building Mm -hmm. versus the newer, more efficient building, right? So, so there's this concept of benchmarking and transparency. Now only 24 cities in the country actually have implemented this and we're one of them, only one in the state of Florida. It took me two and a half years to move forward with this policy, literally Every single day I did over three hundred and fifty meetings in person, held summits, ten workshops, round tables to, to develop the policy. It was unbelievable the amount of engagement that I had to do with with the business community and with the built environment in order to move this forward. But essentially the policy now, starting May twenty eighteen, will require that the largest buildings, fifty thousand square feet and above go through this process of scoring themselves, Mm kind of like a miles per gallon, right? It's like an MPG, from one to 100, how efficient are you? 50 is the national average, 100 is the best, one is the worst, and then getting that score and making it publicly transparent. So that when you go to rent an office building or an apartment Mm -hmm. in downtown, you can actually look at the cost of rent Plus the anticipated cost of utilities and make a better, more informed judgment about where you want to live and work.
1: Right, because you think about uh, residential leases and usually a year, maybe you can get a six month somewhere. That's still a commitment that you're it making. Is, of course. When it comes to commercial, it's even longer. Usually five, exactly. ten, you know, twenty years in some. So you're cases. talking
2: and and operationally, uh, you know, utilities are the second highest cost to live or to work mm-hmm. on top of the actual rent. Right, right? You're, yeah. you're talking about a substantial amount of money. They can fluctuate, and so if you if you really enable transparency to the marketplace, just like we do with miles per gallon, right? When you go to rent a car or buy a car, you can see one for one, 50 miles here versus 25 here. I can go 50 miles on one gallon of gas versus 25, right? Or an energy gauge on new uh, appliances, right? They have that yellow gauge now. You can make a, an informed judgment. If I spend 20 bucks more on this device, I'll mm-hmm. save 10 bucks a year. In two years, I get my money back. I'm good, Right? So, so we need that type of information in the real estate marketplace, and that's essentially what creates a cycle of improvement. Because if I'm a building that's a 40, and my competitor down the road is a building that's an 80, and, and people know that, they're going to attract towards the more efficient, cheaper rent right? Cheaper cost of living. Right. And, and that's going to encourage me as the building that's affordable to say, to go what, out do, and fix things. what yeah. do I do? How do yeah. I improve my lighting and my HVAC, And it creates this whole cycle of improvement. And it just so happens to be the cheapest, most cost effective way to lower pollution and greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. is by making our buildings more efficient because buildings are the biggest impact in Orlando as it relates to greenhouse gas emissions and CO2. It's actually 70% of our footprint is buildings using energy. It's not transportation. Right. is buildings because we have a fuel mix that's pretty dirty. right? We're still producing things off of coal and natural gas. So every kilowatt hour is a huge amount of carbon. And when you looked at these huge buildings, they actually produce 70% of our whole built environment. So in order for us to minimize CO2, in order for us to be more efficient and save natural resources and drive an economy and save water and improve public health, this is one very baby step forward to say, hey, we're going to benchmark every year We're going to make that information transparent. And and that was a huge move for Orlando.
1: What I really like about that is, uh, and I'm Greek, so shame, guilt, those sorts of things really motivate me. I think that's what you're doing for some of these businesses and some of these buildings. Now, you would never, I know Chris Castro, city employee and advocate for this, would never really put it that way. But as, you know, private citizen, Nick Jorgudiu, and actually I'm Canadian, so I can say whatever I want. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I, I like that. Yeah. I'm going to. You're going to be better because your score is lower.
2: Yeah, and and it really informs the the lower performing building that there are things that we can do to save energy, to save you money, and to make you more money. Net operating incomes, as they call it in in real estate, NOI's will go up if you. In the long lower term, the this is
1: going to be better for the building Everyone. on every level. Oh, yeah. Sure. So shame is not really the right motivation, yeah. but that's how I sure you know think of things. Sure. Because I, I have a lot of guilt in my life. So does this sort of dovetail into the Battle of the Buildings, or is that completely it separate? It is does. It does, actually. Yeah, well, yeah. so Battle of the so Buildings... It just started July 1st, right? It
2: did. It did. So Battle of the Buildings is a voluntary competition now for any type of building to basically start competing on saving energy, water, and waste. We actually incorporated waste in there as well. And it's a friendly six-month competition, open to anyone, and actually registration is still open. So any business out there or building that's listening, that wants to join the battle, go to CFBOTB, Central Florida Battle of the Buildings.org, CFBOTB.org. And and essentially, you can register your building, use this simple tool called the Energy Star Portfolio Manager. We've all heard of Energy Star, right? Mm-hmm. It's labels on the appliances and stuff. Well, Energy Star is that tool that scores your building from one to a hundred. It's free, it's online, it's web-based. It's very simple to use. I teach kids how to use it actually to rate their schools. And, and get your business, plug in your data, score yourself, and if you see a reduction, we're going to reward those buildings that have the greatest reduction. And uh, get recognition from the U.S. EPA, get recognition from the mayor, give you a nice award and accolade for that. And then the hope is that the battle of the buildings continues to roll year over year. Sure. But it is a way to get people to start encouraging them to use this tool in a friendly way because come May 2018, the largest buildings are going to be required to, to, to use do it. that. Yeah. yeah.
1: I like that because obviously again, it adds to that level of competition. So yep. I can enter and it's voluntary. And uh, I will think that.
2: Yeah. yeah. The, the other really interesting thing about the battle of the buildings is we partnered with UCF um, and and um, no offense to Rollins by the way, cause we, we definitely want to work with Rollins as well. But we partnered with UCF to uh, train students to use this tool Mm -hmm. and then be energy consultants. So they get deployed to all these participants who can sign up for a free energy specialist, and that energy specialist can work with a hotel and help that hotel plug in their data into the tool and then identify opportunities to save energy, water, and to divert waste in a more effective way. So at the end of the day, we're providing free consulting to the participants who sign up to this program and giving students a real-world consulting experience to get them in the field and boots on the ground in what this looks like, right?
1: Well, I think kids will want to get involved because Battle of the Building sounds like some sort of Transformers thing. Right. And so they're literally <laughs> going to battle. battle. Yeah. I think that ties that into it, and you've got everybody over. from right. A to Z. Uh, so we only have a couple more minutes with you. So I know there were a couple of other things. So Greenworks Orlando. Yeah. Uh, so that is uh, Mayor Dyer' sustainability initiative that you direct. Yes. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So, all of what I just mentioned is all part of the right, Greenworks right. Orlando. So that's, but yeah. Greenworks was started actually ten years ago. Mayor Dyer, we're, we're as the city celebrating our ten-year anniversary of this program, and his vision is really to make Orlando the most environmentally friendly, socially inclusive, and economically vibrant city in the country. And and in order to do that, obviously we have objectives like. By doing this, we can enhance people's quality of life here and protect public health. We can protect the environment and natural resources for generations to come. And we can create a vibrant, robust, clean energy economy, a local economy here that that attracts the creative class, that attracts business development mm-hmm. um, towards being a more sustainable city. And so that's his vision. Like, how do we how do we possibly grow orlando as rapid as we are and still become and maintain a sustainable city so when i first got this role he sat back and said chris you have one of the most difficult positions in the city and that's because you have to look seven generations from today and see what types of policies and programs we can implement now to ensure the long-term sustainability of our city seven generations from now that's more than 150 years from now so are we going to be disposing waste into a huge hole into a landfill? Are we going to be producing energy from coal that's impacting public health? Are we going to, you know, be, be getting, you know, using water straight from the aquifer to water our lawns or can we use reclaimed or other ways? You know, what about our food? Right. We had all of these areas. And so he focuses on seven focused areas within Greenworks. It's energy and green buildings, local food systems, livability, solid waste. Transportation and mobility, water resources, and the green economy. And within those seven areas, we have two plans. One is a municipal sustainability plan, mm-hmm. looking at our own operations, and one is a community sustainability plan that looks at how to do, how does the community, you know, improve and benefit from these types of air, uh, efforts. And and so, um, my role essentially is working with my team, which I have a small team: Ian Jergensen, Brittany Sellers, Ian Lahiff. Uh, Lisa Rain, a couple of others, and we are essentially the consultants for the city of Orlando. That's kind of how it works. It's it's a mayor's office initiative, but but my role is to work with every department and division within the city and encourage a culture of sustainability from the services and products that we procure to how we operate as a city, making sure that sustainability is who we are, not what we do. Right, right. It's part of our city's culture, and and over the last ten years, Orlando's rapidly grown to be known around the country and around the world to be a model, showcase model for how cities can can be more sustainable, how they can incorporate um, these types of initiatives in their day to day operations, and and it's really exciting. So, I mean, there's so much going on in in the realm of GreenWorks. Um, Um, And I'm happy to speak towards any one of those initiatives that that you're interested in.
1: Well, uh, one thing I'm interested in, it sounds like you have two people named Ian
2: on your team. Yes. So could we do a battle of the Ians (laughs) at some point? Green Ian, Red Ian. Yes. Or Garbage Ian and Energy Ian. Okay, that's not... Can you call Garbage Ian
1: like Handsome Ian or something? That's terrible. (laughs) Oh, Jurgensen. That's funny. (laughs) So let me uh, let me ask you about this because we, we were talking about the uh, policy pace yes. uh, to actually make it a little bit easier to get uh, solar panels or do other things to either your business or to your home. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about something like the uh, Florida Sun Solar Co-op? Yes. Um, and things of that nature. So that's a pretty interesting one to me because I didn't consider that. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think co-op, uh, I, I guess I don't know what I think in terms of how would it would apply to technology or how it would apply to helping my home be more efficient. So this is something where uh, you'd get, you know, a number of different people together. I don't think it's operating currently like it's taking on new people,
2: Um, but uh, it might in the future again. Yeah, so um, you bring up a good point. I helped to to kickstart FL Sun and I sit on the board for the organization as well. And the whole idea was that here in Florida, and I don't want to get into the politics, but here in Florida, we have a very difficult regulatory environment for renewable energy in general, right? Um, There are many other states around the country that have policy that enables and embraces um, renewable energy and and realizes that there are benefits outside of the traditional no emission benefit, right? That you can think of, that actually creates resiliency for the electric grid, um, that helps to provide and and empower a local economy, put people back to work, right? Solar is growing at uh, 20 times what the natural census is for job growth right? In the industry year over year mm-hmm. because it's where it's happening. And, and so what we saw was in order for us to really drive solar, we need to lower the cost. We need to figure out a way for us to drive down the cost of solar more so than it's already coming down because it's come down incredibly, right? Over the last just five years, it's dropped over 80% of what it was, right? The biggest cost in solar today isn't the hardware, it's not your solar panels, it's not your inverters, it's not your wiring, it's not your labor. It's actually the soft cost of solar. They call it the soft cost side, which is customer acquisition, planning, permitting, inspection, commissioning. That's actually about 50% of any individual solar array. A company's cost in, yeah, believe it or not, a company's cost in marketing solar and the amount of leads they need to get to finally close one of them is absurd. It's actually very difficult. Just
1: in Florida or in general? general? Across the board.
2: Across the board. We've had Brian Christensen from Vivint Solar come down to Orlando talk to us. They're the second largest installer in the country. He literally said 50% of the cost is soft cost, 50%. This is the second largest company solar company in the country. So we started to think about, well, how do we how do other industries lower the cost? And we thought, well, bulk purchasing. Mm-hmm. You go to Costco versus going to your neighborhood market and you're gonna get a lower unit cost because you're buying in bulk, right? Well, what if we can get 100 homeowners together? And instead of one homeowner going 10 kilowatts, we get 100 homeowners going 100 kilowatts. Now a solar company trying to procure the panels and procure the inverters and, oh, by the way, the customer acquisition side, trying to get customers. Yep, that's already done. solved, solved yep. because people, already have signed up and wanted to go, and now it's cheaper for me to go. So what we saw was a reflection of 30% lower in cost for any solar array just because we had bundled a whole bunch of homeowners together. Brilliant idea. And this came out of actually the League of Women Voters in Central Florida, which is one of the largest leagues in the country. Um, they were the impetus behind making a relationship with an organization called Community Power Network in Washington, D.C. And Community Power Network has has been working on developing co-ops around the country. And so CPN basically was working with League of Women Voters to do this first iteration, what they called the Central Florida Solar Advocates. Mary Dubois, Michael Cohen, these two really from the League spearheaded the idea of bringing this down here. They brought me in. They said, Chris... You're a solar expert. We need you to be a part of the team. Let's educate, let's host workshops, let's mm-hmm. educate the public, let's sign them up, and then let's see how this whole thing works. And after that one Orange County session, we ended up creating a whole organization called FL Sun, Solar United Neighborhoods, that's basically now replicating co ops across the state. We have two in Florida, or two in Miami, one in Sarasota, one in Brevard, now one in St. Pete, uh, one in Orange County, two in Orange County. We have another one in Seminole starting up. This thing is starting to really replicate as an idea of bringing together neighborhoods and communities to bulk purchase solar, lowering the cost of customer acquisition, lowering the total cost of solar, and now making it less than $2 a watt, which is hard to understand if you're not in the solar industry, but it was $4.50 a watt less than three years ago, and now it's $2 a watt. So now you're talking about a $17,000 system, now less than $10,000. Plus, you get the 30% tax credit. So now you're less than $7,000 out of pocket. Now it makes a lot of sense for me to use Pace to buy the, the $10,000 system, right. stretch it over 10 years, and now my return on investment is literally less than 10 years, and I went solar like that. Right. Well, you create this entire framework for people to drive the adoption of going solar.
1: So let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm going to let you go. I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Yeah, and I could uh, be
2: here all day to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: But I know you got to get to work on the 852 things that you're probably doing right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, so before we get to websites and how to get involved, what I take for granted sometimes what we're talking about here in terms of uh, the solar power companies having trouble getting uh, uh, customers or having to go out there and go through tons of leads in order to convert people is, you know, when you're talking about cost per watt Mm -hmm. is I think some people can sometimes take for granted that not everybody buys into this idea of solar. Not everybody, maybe they buy into the idea of solar, but they already have it in their head that it's too expensive to invest in. Very true. Uh, Maybe they don't know or see the benefits of LED lighting, Uh, those sorts of things. So what is the first step for you? Is it getting involved in something like Ideas for Us and Hive Orlando and things and you know, mm-hmm. getting those different perspectives, what what would be the first step that you would recommend to people or that you have recommended to
2: people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest challenge is a cultural and behavioral challenge that you're talking about here. This misconception around a lot of these solutions that are either too expensive or they don't have a good return or I don't know how to get engaged. And I would say and very much encourage everyone out there to, to come out to a hive, uh, you know, every first Wednesday of the month um, at East End Market um, and, and really engage with, with this group of people, because it really is the first step into um, the community of advocates who are very much trying to heighten the awareness around sustainability and and the simplicity that it's really a no brainer at this point in time. That there's a lot of things that we can be doing in energy, water, and food, waste, ecology, transportation, mm-hmm. you name it, um, for us to live a more sustainable lifestyle. So I definitely say, you know, um, try to get engaged with the local group. Um, specifically, ideas for us is, is a great one to do so. But there's a lot of other good organizations out there. Your traditional Sierra Club, your traditional um, uh, Audubon, uh, Orange Audubon Society, whatever your passion is, right? Find find a group within that passion and start to get engaged with them. Um, ideas certainly is is very interdisciplinary, so we can we work with a lot of people from a lot of different passions and backgrounds. Um, so so yeah, I'd say definitely get engaged there. Great. Yeah. All right, very good. And
1: some websites that people can go to.
2: Yeah, so so on the Ideas website, I, I mentioned uh, IdeasForUs.org, F-O-R-U-S, all spelled out, IdeasForUs.org. If you want to learn more about fleet farming, check out FleetFarming.org. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of cool videos and resources online about mm. fleet, which is really neat. Um, and then in terms of Greenworks and everything we're doing at the city, check out GreenworksOrlando.com. That will immediately be um converted or wired to the city of Orlando website where you can learn more about the strategies, the programs that we have going on. We didn't talk about the free composters we're giving out, uh, free trees that we're launching. Right, right. Um, we're doing a lot of cool stuff with community garden building and local food production. Uh, across the board, there's some very exciting things happening in, uh, with Greenworks. And so maybe in the future I can come back and really focus in on, Absolutely. on the city stuff. Um,
1: we know, can talk about, I think we should give it an hour to composting.
2: And probably fertilizer, we can ease probably easily talk yeah, about yeah, an hour to composting and, and food <laughs> waste collection program, what we're doing with biogas and all this crazy stuff. Um, but Nick, this is a pleasure, and thank you very much. Oh for no, the, thank uh, you, invitation.
1: Chris. Uh, absolutely. So we're going to come back. We've got a little more time left. We've got a conversation that several local artists had at the Manila Museum last month. So we're going to hear some highlights from that coming back uh, after uh, this song on WPRK Winter Park, Florida. Thank you again, Chris Castro. We'll pretend to shake hands on the air. That's very good. (laughs) And uh, you're listening to a
0: certain degree. And that's the show. Check out Orlando's sustainability efforts and the work that Chris's team is doing at greenworksorlando.com. If you're interested in learning more about Ideas for Us and Fleet Farming, please visit ideasforus.org and fleetfarming.org. There are plenty of ways to participate. Consider attending a hive workshop or biweekly swarm ride. You know that sounds very insect-related. Do you need spray? Organic bug spray, of course. And now I feel itchy. Is it? Is this at genetic?